0: Or should I start with this is Bread for the People? Do you like it like this? Welcome to Bread, or do you like it like this? Welcome. Ready? Welcome to Bread for the People. Mind j- Fuck. Is there a script? Bread for the People. Alright, I'm here today with Maurizio Leo, the founder of The Perfect Loaf. The Perfect Loaf is a website dedicated to baking naturally leavened sourdough bread at home. The Perfect Loaf has won numerous awards, and Mauricio has been featured on Food & Wine magazine, Bon Appetit, among others. Mauricio, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, I'm glad to be
2: here. Thanks thanks for having me, Jim.
0: How's your day going today? Have you been working on the blog?
2: I, I'm always working on the blog, I, I think because I'm I'm just baking pretty much every day. So in some way or another... You know even if i'm just baking a a loaf of bread here for for my family it kind of goes into to something i'm hoping to turn into you know some writing or some video to help someone else bake in the same way right are you shooting video
0: almost every day you know i'm not
2: a huge video kind of production person i'm not i've taken photos for a long time and i think that's something that i have always just kind of gravitated towards so video is a little bit of a change for me but I'd say I'm increasing the amount of video that I'm doing. Yeah.
0: That's awesome. I mean, you have one of the most helpful blogs for home bakers in the country and probably around the world. Did you set out to do that from the very beginning to to help people? Did it have to do with your struggles along the way of trying to figure out how to bake the perfect loaf? Yeah.
2: You know, I started out just kind of so amazed by the process of of natural fermentation and, and sourdough. I think I, because I got sucked in, you know, from the beginning, from that very first loaf of bread that I made, I knew that there was some complexities there and, you know, kind of the challenges that I went through when I started the whole process of creating a starter and doing all those things. It it was hard in the beginning because back then, this was over a decade ago now, I've I've been baking. There were some great books for sure, but there wasn't a lot of like online content or videos. There were a few helpful sites, but back then there really wasn't a lot, you know, for home, for home bakers. It was kind of one of those crafts where you had to kind of apprentice with someone before right. you could really understand, you know, what's going on. And so, you know, I started my my website actually maybe six months or so after I originally started baking. And my whole thing was like, okay, if I'm struggling through this, maybe I can help a few people learn in the way that I'm doing it, that way they can kind of shortcut and not have to spend a you know month or whatever it took for me to, to create my starter in the beginning.
0: Right. Now, did you actually apprentice with someone?
2: I did not. No. So yeah, I'm. I actually went to school for engineering. So I'm. You know, I'm a computer software engineer. So I'm at the computer all day. And or you know, I just learned baking through books and you know scouring whatever information I could online. Um, I did take some classes later on. But that was well into at least five years or so
0: into me baking. That's amazing. I pretty much taught myself the same way, a lot of trial and error. And I'm, I'm still learning. You know, yeah. there's so much to learn. But I know you were inspired by your family. I believe your father owned a restaurant.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so my my dad, he he's Italian. He grew up in Italy. He came over here when he was about 20 to New Mexico. You know, he studied... At culinary school in Italy and he always kind of worked in restaurants and so when he came here in the US he opened a restaurant here in, in Albuquerque New Mexico and it's been around for 40 years so he's you know he's been working the restaurant and I grew up at that restaurant so every summer when we were off from school you know I kind of was too young to really help in the kitchen but I feel like I absorbed the atmosphere and kind of you know watching my dad Teach people, other people, how to cook or how to make pizza and that kind of thing. And then I also, you know, I had the very like stereotypical Italian American household where my, my nonna would come from Italy and stay for like three months and she was making pasta. She was a, a professional chef as well, so she was making pasta in our kitchen. And, you know, I totally took that for granted as a kid. I would love to have that <laughs> now, but um, yeah, I was very much. I think inspired by food in general with my upbringing and, you know,
0: kind of my family. We sit around sometimes, maybe three, four, five times a year, we make pasta together as a family. I think it's such a cool activity to do with family and friends. Absolutely. You know, uh, do you do that with your kids? I do. Yeah.
2: I, I post about it on Instagram occasionally, and it's just fun to like, you know, not only teach them about something that I feel like they should know, like it's a useful skill to have, but it's just kind of fun to let them go wild and, and have have fun with food, right? It doesn't always have to be, you know, I'm very much an engineer, so I'm very, you know, process oriented, which is why I think baking appeals to me so much. But at the same time, you know, I want my kids to have fun with it. It doesn't have to all be, you know, numbers and, and spreadsheets and stuff. So I love doing that.
0: Absolutely. I did want to ask you about your engineering background you touched upon it just now, but do you think there's an overlap and one thing relates to the other? And there's a reason that background attracts you to the science of baking bread?
2: I, I think so. I think, you know, I think you could be an amazing baker and you, you know, you definitely don't have to be an engineer or a scientist or any of that stuff. I mean, of course, people have been making bread for, you know, thousands of years without any of that kind of um, the, the knowledge that we have today. But I feel like, you know, my personality is kind of, it's one that's always focused on, you know, like algorithms and process and like iterative development, iterative improvement, the craft side of baking, just kind of the the repetitions that you need to become proficient in the craft, like any other craft, very much appealed to me. But also the, you know, the spreadsheets, the numbers and like creating formulas and improving things just a little bit each time you bake it. So I think I think there is an overlap there, at, at least for me.
0: I actually love the numbers part of this too. When we started real small and had it to scale, we had to figure out how to create these spreadsheets to scale. We're constantly modifying the recipes. Yeah. For some reason, after a year of making focaccia, our dough is constantly dry. <laughs> <laughs> and focaccia, in our, in our case at least, has to be significantly hydrated and um constantly making changes there i'm the type of person that you know kind of dives in deep on something and goes you
2: know goes all in and that definitely happened to me with bread but i also can get kind of bored easy and i think if i work at something really hard the minute that i feel like okay i'm I'm kind of good at this i might get kind of bored and and move on but what i love so much about bread and, and sourdough especially is that like you said it's always changing like every day there's there's always something to be improved. Even if you think, okay, I love, you know, I love my focaccia. It's great the way it is today. You know, the next day it might be a little bit off and it it just kind of sticks with you. And you're always just kind of working at, at that improvement.
0: Absolutely. Do you ever use, I know you specialize in, in sourdough and naturally leaven. Do you ever use a touch of commercial yeast?
2: I I get asked this one often because I, I feel like, you know, a lot of bakers use kind of the hybrid approach, Right now, they I, do
0: in pizza. It seems that's
2: yeah, yeah, especially in pizza. And you know, my dad with his pizzeria here in town, he never once used um, natural leavening in his dough. It was just solely instant yeast, and he, you know, he swore by it. The texture, you know, the kind of the the clean flavor that you get. And I, I mean, that that's I love that. I think that's great. I don't think instant yeast or commercial yeast is a, a bad thing in any way. But for me personally, I. Have only ever really worked with natural leavening. And so I know it. And so I've just kind of stuck with it. Right. Um, you know, that's not to say in the future, maybe I won't try it with, especially like enriched breads or, you know, things like brioche um, and those kind of things. But for me, it's, it's always been natural leavening
0: and, and that's it. A good half of what I do that's naturally leavened and I kind of stick with that. And then I have another half that's commercial yeast and I, I kind of keep it separate. But I'm getting better with the natural yeast in terms of controlling it with cold fermentation. You know, at first I had no refrigeration, so I was purely racing against the clock and making sure I had to take it out of bulk in time, mm-hmm. uh, make sure it wasn't overproofed. But um, I figured out how to get some more refrigeration going on. Because cause in my case, we're baking several hundred loaves in a day, you have to be able to control time. Yeah. Otherwise we have big problems on our hands. And I learned that the hard way.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm in kind of a, a fortunate circumstance where I'm baking six to 10 loaves is kind of my max, my maximum, but you know, I, I am up here at high altitude. Yeah. Uh, we're about a mile up. And also the temps here are, you know, 105 some days. So there's a lot of things that I have to do to kind of rein in that dough as well. And it, it can, if you don't, if you're not on it like you know hawk's eye watching everything you can have a batch that'll overproof on you in in no time so i I totally get it
0: have you been baking your whole professional baking career at that altitude yeah
2: it's all been i I grew up here in albuquerque and i've i've been um i don't want to say trapped but i'm gonna say trapped here (laughs) it's a great place to live but it it has its challenges i i can remember my my nona when she would come from italy and she would try to make focaccia or, or anything really and she would always complain. She's like, "This is the dough. The dough is too dry here. It doesn't rise. I don't know what's going on." So I wish I could explain to her now, you know, how to
0: adjust for that. But maybe we just came up with an episode of something we could do. A, <laughs> you know, like they do that house swap or family swap. I, we could switch. You could come here to the humid New York, <laughs> and I could go to Albuquerque at your altitude and see what happens. Yeah, I've I've taught a, a couple
2: baking classes, and I taught one in in New Orleans and talk about the complete opposite environment than what, what I've got going on here. So I had to adjust pretty quick. I, I was only there for two days so it was it was an adjustment.
0: I could only imagine. And the pressure's on when you're in front of a class I would think. <laughs> right, exactly. So going back to your time as an engineer, you helped develop an app called Terminal Eleven. The the company is called Terminal Eleven, the app is called Skyview. Okay. Could you tell us about that? I'm just curious.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, like I mentioned, I, I went to school for, for software engineering. I've always been kind of fascinated with technology. And I, out of school, I went to work at a defense contractor here in Albuquerque. So I worked, I worked on um, drones back in the day before you could, like, go to Walmart and pick one up. These were, like, these huge unmanned vehicles that were flying around. There were several of us that worked there. We got kind of swept up with apps and you know, cell phones and things when they were first coming out. This was you know, over 10 years ago now at this point. And we entered a competition where we developed a, a space exploration app where you could hold your phone up to the sky and it would show you, you can easily spot the sun and the moon, but it would also show you where they would be in the sky you know, yeah. throughout the day.
0: We've uh, used that they, for, um, for film sets I work on because it's very important yeah. to, to know you know, what we're exactly. dealing with with shadows and certain light. One of the, the highest
2: number of emails we got in the beginning, like in the first couple of years of, of developing Skyview, were from like directors and DPs, you know, yeah. Yeah, everybody out in Hollywood, they were like, we love your app because we can track, you know, how to position the set and, and all these things. So, yeah, that's right.
0: Yeah, it was a useful tool, man. I could picture our DP doing it out in Los <laughs> Angeles every day. This is because we would go on scouts. You know like a week in advance of where we're going to be shooting and we knew what time of day we'd be there so a week ahead of time you know he'd be holding this thing up this guy (laughs) this is where it's going to be when we're here and we're like are you crazy how do you know yeah
2: (laughs) it's i mean it's still amazing when i when i use our app because i'm like you know since doing that first version 10 years ago the phones and you know all these mobile devices have become so fluid and incredible the sensors are so high precision that You know, you move your phone in the sky and and we're plotting like, you know, thousands of satellites, you know, all the planets, constellations, all these things all at once. And yeah, there's a lot of math and and hardware um, optimization
0: going on. We, uh, my son has the one, there's a lot of planes flying overhead. He'll shoot it up and it'll tell us flight. It'll show you a picture of the plane. It'll show (laughs) you when it took off, where it's going and when it's gonna land. Yeah, that's incredible. From the research I've done, it, it it seems like you bake with the Rofco oven. Yeah, yeah, so
2: all of the recipes that I post about on, on my website on The Perfect Loaf are, they're all baked in my home oven, just because I know most people don't have a professional, you know, or semi-professional bread oven in their in their garage like I do, but I use both. So I use my home oven to verify recipes, and then I use my Rothko for, for larger bakes.
0: I know a lot of the farmer's market bakers use them I've never used one. I've thought about it. One of the things that held me back is the volume in there and the amount of loaves you could you could bake at one time. But what is it about the design of that oven that is so great for bread?
2: I feel like it's it's like a you know a car before cars got all these electronics and crazy you know computer chips and things inside. It's like a bare bones machine that works and does the one task that it's supposed to do. You know what I mean? There's like, you could repair it yourself. There's not a lot of components that can go wrong. And I've had things, you know, small things break like gasket and, you know, I've had to adjust the each deck to kind of equalize temperature inside, but it's so bare bones and it's so easy to use. I, I think that's the draw to it. And it it's also a kind of the perfect size for, you know, a small to medium sized baker. It's kind of like the size of a small like mini mini fridge mm-hmm. and you can put it anywhere you can stack them together and so you can quickly ramp up your your bread production using that the downside is that it does not have steam injection you know at, at the touch of a button like a professional like a larger professional um, bakery oven might have but the flip side there is that i kind of feel like anything that has water in it is more prone to break because it's it just you know water is just hard on everything you know especially here in we have very, very uh, hard water. And so it it kind of destroys everything that it touches. But I think it's those two things, the price isn't too crazy. And it's it's just a good all around option.
0: What's the workaround for the steam in that oven?
2: So for that, I I use a like a pressurized water sprayer or, you know, like a a food grade, it's it's a larger like pump sprayer that I pump, Uh it holds pressure, I load my dough, and then I just spray inside and, and
0: quickly close the door. Right at the beginning. Right, right. As you're end. loading, you, you spray it. Okay. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's easy. What about a pan of water? Would that help?
2: Yeah, you can order these, I think they call them steam pods that are options for the oven and they slide in on the side. It's actually a, a pretty ingenious design. They're just these thin metal trays that you can pour water into and they'll continuously generate steam until, you know, it obviously all evaporates out. I used those for a while and I ended up not keeping them because they take up just a little bit too much space on wow. the sides. So it depends on what you're baking. If you're baking a bunch of thin things like you know, demi baguettes or something like that, then those would probably fit much nicer for you.
0: Talking about the water being hard there, does the hardness of the water or the mineral content change the outcome of the bread? And this, this is a question I ask. A lot of people, and I get a lot of different answers. <laughs> so, I just want your opinion on that.
2: I, I think it's a great question. I I've listened to some of your episodes about bagels, and right. you know the contention there is with water. And I, I think even in Italy, some cities claim that you know the, the terroir, the yeah, that for sure. But the water, you know, there's local conditions that make bread a certain way. I actually treat the water. I soften the water, not like to a crazy amount you know otherwise I mean it's so bad that you leave it sitting somewhere you'll just get you know mineralization on the outside of the container within you know a couple days. Wow. I've heard other bakers say and this is kind of hearsay that harder water is actually better for baking for whatever reason like it the the mineral content or whatever either results in a better tasting bread or fermentation is, is stronger but a lot of you know municipal water sources are usually or can be softened, and here mine, mine is softened as well. So I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. I, w- I wish I did. I, I need to
0: do, like, side-by-side tests. But it's all good. I just, yeah. I just like hearing what people's uh, instinct is or what they've heard or what they believe. Yeah. <laughs> Less concerned with the scientific accuracy, I guess. <laughs> so you have a new book coming out in November? It's called The Perfect
2: Loaf. Yeah, it comes out November 8th, finally, after, you know, three long years of writing and writing through the pandemic and testing and photographing. And yeah, it's, it's been a labor of love for sure.
0: What was the process to put the book out and get it published? Cause I'm somewhat versed in getting books set up with uh, comedians and actors. I'm curious to hear what the process is for a book like this.
2: The publisher or my publisher, um, Clarkson Potter, they reached out to me three years ago or so. And you know they were interested in me submitting a proposal to them on you know what I might write the book about. And, and they were familiar with me because my editor who reached out, um, Jen Sid, she's she's been incredible on, uh, throughout this whole entire process. I think her husband is, is a pretty avid sourdough baker. And so there was some connection there. and I think maybe he mentioned me to her and, and then they reached out. Yeah, it started from there. And I was always interested in writing a book. But I had kind of said no to to many opportunities that I had come across because I, I didn't feel like the vision from the publisher was aligned with what I had wanted to do with the book. But with Clarkson Potter, they're a, a publisher that it's like every amazing cookbook I have chances are high that they're going to be the publisher for that. So I was, you know, when they reached out, I was, I was all on board.
0: That's great. How, so it took you a couple of years. Well, the proposal, there's many different steps in book writing, right? There's right. first like the 20 page, essentially the outline of what the book is. And then you go through that and you submit it. Is that the process you went through?
2: Yeah. The proposal, my feeling
0: is they didn't say, say this, but my feeling is that they
2: had kind of already decided that, you know, I might be a good fit for a bread book um, for their lineup. So, but usually, yes, you write the proposal, you know, they might review it and they get back to you on whether it's something they want to do. And then you can move forward with hashing out a contract. And by then I had already started, you know, writing and researching the book. So I was already moving forward at that point. And then it's, you know, a long stretch after you sign the contract, it's a long stretch of you writing before you submit uh, the manuscript, which is kind of like the the, you know, the first cut at it.
0: Right. Was it easy for you to decide which recipes to include? It was
2: not. It was not easy because I I think I've been writing recipes for, you know, 10 years for my website and I have always I always have ideas for bread, you know, kind of rolling around and I, I quickly get a, really excited about certain types of bread and so I just dumped a huge list on them, and I was like, you know, "This is what I'm thinking." The book originally had 100 recipes, right. which would have been way too too long. We already had to cut, you know, almost half the content that I I wrote for the book because it was it was too long. It, it's hard. It's hard to decide. There were some. I'd say there's probably about 20 where I was like, "Okay, these have to be in the book." Like anybody who's baking sourdough is going to want to bake these. And then the other ones were kind of like seasonal, you know, seasonal breads. There were some. You know, I wanted to make some quick foods that you can make instead of like a two to three day fermentation time. So I tried to do a good balance and my editor, you know, played a huge part there. She helped me kind of keep the audience in mind. And I was going to ask that. I
0: was going to ask, yeah. you know, because that's the one thing I know about it. You have to define who your audience is and who you're writing for. So in this case, in this book, The Perfect Loaf, who would you say the audience is?
2: So one of the reasons why I liked going with... Clarkson Potter is because they kind of agreed with me on the audience for this book. So I think many bread books target the very beginner baker. I think that's a probably a good demographic to go for because there's a lot more beginners than there are, you know, advanced or expert bakers in terms of general population. But they were okay with me targeting a more broad spectrum. I'd say it. It leans towards the beginner. But I definitely have some very advanced recipes like, you know, brioche and a couple other breads that are are more complicated. And then I have some in the middle as well. So I, I really tried to hit everybody along the way. It's kind of like it, it really is the book that I wish I had had when I first started baking because it starts you off from nothing. And it kind of walks you through your progression as a baker, like every year you're gonna progress and wanna tackle something more challenging or different. And that's what I try to do with the book is it? it's always giving you something new to kind of work on next.
0: Right. What makes brioche harder to bake than other breads?
2: You know, in, in terms of natural leavening for brioche, which is, you know, very much not typical. It's probably to some hardcore bakers, you might, you know, they might be like, oh, that's not real brioche because it's not using instant yeast. There's gonna to be too much you know, sourness or, or whatnot in the, in the flavor profile. So that really to me is the challenge. It's, it's managing fermentation to get a very mild flavor profile with lots of rise and a very delicate texture in the bread. So doing all those with sourdough is, is pretty challenging just because of the
0: long fermentation time required. Got it. Uh, in a lot of your recipes, they're same day bulk rises and same day bakes with natural leavened bread. I don't do that, but I'm interested in that.
2: I think it's, I think it's awesome. I, I probably do maybe half of my bakes are, you know, retarded or cold proofed. Maybe it's, it might be a little bit more than that because I, I do enjoy that long fermentation time and the flavor that you get. But for a same day bake, you can develop a very interesting flavor profile in the bread. And I think it's, you know, it's really delicious in a different way. You get different flavors that kind of come through. You don't have as much, uh, you definitely don't have as much sourness. And, you know, I'm talking about the types of breads that I make. You can still make a same day bread that's very sour if you want, but that shorter fermentation time, I feel like it's, it's a very clean taste. It's more like, you know, letting the grain flavor kind of come forward at its maximum.
0: Do you have to use more starter if it's not, Proofing as long bulk proofing? It's a good
2: question. It it depends on all the other factors. So usually for me, when I do a same day bread, I do use more pre ferment. So I'll use more. I'll either build a Levant that's that goes overnight and it's much lo- longer. I'm sorry, much larger. Or you can you know increase the temperature of the dough if you want to, or you know you can use more whole grains. So you've got all of those kind of levers that you want to balance out. To, to kind of speed the bread along a little faster.
0: Okay, and how would you go about making a same day bread more sour? For that, what you could do is, is you can use, you can use more whole
2: grains. More whole grains will definitely give you a, a more sour flavor profile. I like to build an overnight Levan that is all whole grain, low hydration, you know, 50 to 60% water to flour. Let that ripen overnight, and that gives bacteria a chance to really get get active in there. Plus, you're building up a lot of kind of acidity in the pre-ferment itself. Those two things right there alone will get you pretty far. Like you'll get you'll get a much more sour bread. And then to do one more, I mean, if you wanted to take it even farther, like in my book, I have a recipe for you know very sour bread, and you know you could take that dough after you've shaped it and let it proof in the refrigerator for, you know, even longer. But for a same day, yeah, more whole grains, an overnight levon. It's kind of a, a balancing act with how much you put how much pre-ferment you put in the dough, because if you put in a high percentage, then that can, I mean, there's a lot of factors, but that can result in a less sour bread, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive because you know, usually, you would think, okay, more sour pre ferment will give you a you know super sour bread, but that's not always the case. It really depends on the flour, you know, the temperature, and and even the hydration can can play a role.
0: It's interesting. My bread's not particularly sour. It has been by accident uh, because it ended up in the fridge for three or four days instead of yeah. normal two, and we were very excited when we ate it. <laughs> Right, but this is the answer. But there's probably other ways to achieve the same thing in less time. I'm still trying to figure that out. You know? Yeah, yeah.
2: In my book, I, I call it the extra sour sourdough bread. And what I do there is I, I do what I just mentioned. So I'm an overnight levon with with whole grains. And then I do, which I think is the way you bake most often is a cold bulk ferment. So I will put the bulk tub, you know, in the fridge, let it proof
0: overnight? I actually don't. I I do a room temperature bulk ferment and then... um, And then into the fridge before dividing. I bake two ways and it's all based on schedule. I try to mix my weekend. I do markets on Saturdays and Sundays. I try to do all my mixing on Friday mornings or Thursday night, actually, and let it all rise room temperature, bulk ferment overnight. Oh, okay. And then Friday morning, I put one batch in the fridge and then the the Saturday stuff I shape right away and I put in the oven.
2: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I, I've never done that. I've never shaped. Well, I, I guess I should say with, yeah, I've never taken a dough out of the fridge in bulk shaped and then baked
0: you it's know, amazing. quickly. It's amazing. That's pretty cool. Sometimes I'll let it sit for a half hour or sometimes if I'm shaping, you know, I could do like 12, boulets 12 boules at one time and, uh, You know, the other dough for the next 12 are sitting out, and they have the benefit of now waiting about a half hour, whatever that time is. And there's a little bit of a difference. But yeah, a lot of it came down for me, convenient, because I started doing it out of my home without much help and could only do what I can do with the tools I had.
2: Yeah. And I I think for every baker who's, you know, baking at scale, I think a lot of the bread that they make is solely based on the process that they they have to conform to, to to ensure that they can bake the bread at the time they need it. Especially if you have a small oven and you have to stagger things or, you know, whatever constraints you have. Yeah.
0: When we first started, we were doing it out of the actual regular kitchen oven and boy. (laughs) That's a lot. That's a lot of bread. It was nuts. It was just (laughs) nuts. Then we got a steam convection oven, which I, I do like. It doesn't have stone, but it's got the steam, so that that helps.
2: Yeah, for sure. I wish I've always wished
0: I had had one of
2: those. It makes it makes it much easier.
0: Yeah. So, some of the recipes in the book, you talk about Roman style pizza and focaccia. I don't know if it's in the book or somewhere else. You talk about pizza al taglio. Mm-hmm. Is that in the book? Yeah, I have a yep. I have a it's pizza al taglio,
2: which is just kind of like you know cut pizza or pizza pizza by the
0: by the piece right and that's baked in a sheet pan with a steel or is the pan the steel
2: you can do it either way it, it really depends on your pan I like to have either a baking steel or a baking stone in the oven and then slide the pan on top if you find that the bottom isn't coloring
0: you know is that you mentioned a Lloyd pan which I had never heard of yeah you, you
2: should you should look at that, that company. They make pans, I think up in Oregon, and the way they make their pans, the, you know, the metal and the coating and everything they have on them, it just always results in like the most perfect crust for focaccia or any kind of pizza you're making. It's, I, I cherish those pans that I have because they, they just do such a great job at efficiently conducting heat to the dough that's inside. Do
0: you oil that pan?
2: It depends on the recipe. If I'm doing like a focaccia, uh, for sure. With the pizza al taglio, I don't usually oil it. I just kind of shape that out and, and stretch it out. Um, but you can if you like to like with focaccia, it works, it works great.
0: What do you consider the difference between focaccia and a pizza like al taglio?
2: <laughs> it's, a, it's a great question. It's, it's kind of a, a heated question, maybe. A loaded question. A loaded question. There you go. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of like my view on it. So I think there, there's all these in Italy, you know, there's heated cultural lines that are drawn between the different uh, foods that you can make. Some people consider like focaccia pizza and, you know, so it it gets complicated. But for me, focaccia is definitely thicker than pizza al taglio. That one, you know, that kind of pizza is thinner. It's got a little bit more of a crispy crust to it and you know you're not going for like a super thick slice like you would like a Sicilian or, or those kind of pizzas. So it's to me those are the two definite distinctions but also with focaccia I usually tend to to side with more simple toppings you know usually just like some herbs and olive oil and salt um, hmm. whereas altaglio can be whatever you want. I I like to do arugula and, you know, even like pepperoni on top or zucchini or any of those, those toppings.
0: I do, uh, I do a focaccia with truffle zest and truffle salt and a little rosemary. It's nice. It's got that. (laughs) When I bring that to the market, everyone can smell it and they freak out. Yeah. Truffles are,
2: I feel like this magical food that, you know, they're so good. And I could, I've never
0: had it on focaccia, but I would definitely buy that. It's pretty great. I remember, and this is one of the, for us, the inspirations for, for baking together. We went as a family to Flom, Flom. <laughs> Rome, Florence, and Venice. I think it was in Rome. Everything had truffles. Every restaurant right. you walked in smells like truffles. And right. my kids hadn't really smelled it before, and they were freaked. They didn't like it. They did not yeah. like it at first.
2: I, I think, I don't know that my kids would like it. I, if, I feel like it's it's something when you get older, you kind of start to gravitate more towards.
0: Yeah, definitely. When you, you traveled to Italy quite a bit as a kid with your family, right?
2: Yeah, we, we went back, you know, most of my family is, is there in Italy. So we went back there almost every year. And when I got older, I, I also went back my brother lived there for a number of years. And so I'd go visit him and we'd travel around and that kind of thing. So, yeah.
0: And did some of that rub off on you in terms of you know adventuring into those restaurants and seeing those types of food was it different than what you grew up with back home in the states
2: yeah yeah it's was, it was very different i think the impact there that had the most effect on me was down in southern italy where my my dad's family is from you know it's it's very much that community meal where you know we have a huge family down there so everybody would come every night like at eight and we'd eat until, you know, 11 kind of thing and they'd be making food in their, you know, wood-fired oven. We'd have gelato with, you know, a local place that made it. They'd be making pasta by hand. They take the time to ensure the food is as best as it could be. And it's not expensive food, you know, it's just the time and the care and the effort is put into the meals to make sure that everybody is enjoying it. That's the biggest
0: impact that had on me. Now, I know you have, uh, The Perfect Loaf offers memberships, and you donate a percentage of all the money you raise there to support carbon removal. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I've changed where I've put those uh, donations to over the years. But, yeah, I run a membership where it's kind of like a little community where, where people have come to join, and, you know, we have like a, a little discord server that we talk on, um, which is pretty active. Like people are posting pictures and asking for help. I don't have any kind of like paid, you know, paywall or anything on my site. It's all, you know, completely free, but I did the membership to kind of form a way for me to continue to work on the site, like just complete dedication. So all of the funds that I collect there, you know, go into the site and allow me to write all the articles and the guides and things, but I also felt like, you know, since we're all kind of creating this community of, you know, like-minded bakers, I feel like some of that should go back in some way. And in the past, I've donated those funds to like um, Action Against Hunger and some other food, food-related ones. But I've recently switched to Strike Climate because I love kind of their mission. It's, it's all about, you know, removing carbon from the atmosphere. And I think that's something that's, you know, super critical right now. You know, it may not feel like something as appropriate as food, like, you know, since this is a food site, shouldn't I be giving to like a food company? But I feel like if we can't grow wheat, (laughs) we can't (laughs) make bread. So that's the
0: connection. Yeah, that's great. You're doing great things. I really love your work and I look forward to getting my hands on the book. I urge everyone that listens to this to check it out. And certainly if you don't know Mauricio's site, perfect loaf please give it a look i think you're gonna love it uh, i know a lot of people who listen to this already do know it um, and it's been great to get to know you a little bit so i appreciate you taking the time yeah likewise it's been fun i'm always always up for talking about bread all right man thank you so much thank you
1: it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper